Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. A program used by about 1 million people to help them with financial decisions. That is the focus of this edition of Maximizing Outcomes. Your host, Jim McGovern, talks with the creator of the Living Balance Sheet, Bob Ball, who, by the way, has earned a few patents with this system. So, Jim, how do you know Bob? That's a great story. You know, Bob is somebody that I was, uh, I would say he was like an informal mentor of mine when I, I, I first met him. Uh, I was in the audience. Uh, I would go to conventions that he was the platform speaker. And we're not talking about conventions where he's up there for an hour or so. We're talking about him leading upwards of a thousand professionals for multiple days. And he was just one of those people that as he was speaking, I, I simply could not write fast enough to capture everything he was saying. I was absolutely blown away by his teachings. And he decided to, uh, to I guess, pave a new path and create a new system called Living Balance Sheet. This is back in 2005, 2006. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have a conversation with Bob, and he actually asked me to join the teaching faculty for Living Balance Sheet. So the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, Bob has not only been a, an amazing mentor of mine, but he has, he has transformed my business. He's transformed the lives of my clients. And uh, the same is true for several thousand other professionals throughout the country. And during that time, all the years where uh, he's been uh, a formal mentor of mine, you know, being on the teaching faculty, he's also become a great friend. So when I launched this podcast, uh, I had Bob in mind as a, a phenomenal guest that I wanted to someday bring on the show. And we reached the point where the audience is now large enough that I, uh, I reached out to Bob and said, I'd, I'd love to have you in the show and share some of the wisdom that he has, uh, he has not only built over the, this time period, but he's, he's packaged up. And I just think it'd be a great couple of episodes. So we're actually going to do back-to-back episodes here with Bob. And, uh, and please introduce the audience to my good friend, Bob Ball. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Jim, and I appreciate all that you just said, and uh, the, the pleasure's mine, and it's um, always great to be with you in whatever capacity it happens to be, whether it's uh, talking about what we do to help consumers or hitting the golf ball or anything in between. I think it's going to be a great episode because I, I wanted the audience to get a sense of the vision behind Living Balance Sheet, uh, why it was created, and what really led to going off on this, this path where you, you created the system. Tell us just a little bit about your your history in the financial services industry, when you started, the different successes that you had, and, and ultimately what led to the creation of Living Balance Sheet. Well, like you and most other financial advisors, I was initially trained under a philosophy based upon needs and goal setting. And I became very good at helping clients see the gap, making them feel the pain against uh, what they had stated to be their future goals and aspirations. It was always a numerical type of conversation. How much do you need for retirement? How much do you need for college? How much would your family need in the event of your death? Need, need, need. And the financial planning world takes that target and does their magic by figuring out how long it is until that money might be required. And then Unfortunately, 
designs the plan based upon very fragile assumptions and total guesswork. So as I progressed through my career and inside the industry around me, it just became evident that the public was being underserved. How can it be that we can, with any accuracy, predict what's going to happen 30 years from now, what the world will look like, what it will feel like, and more importantly, what will have transpired during that 30-year period? So I began thinking about a solution that would not require guessing and would not really be based upon linear math, but rather just try to understand what uh, money is and how money works and how money behaves in the face of a variety of eroding factors. That's where it all started. It was really just to step out of the training that I initially was exposed to and think of ways in which I could be better on behalf of the clients that I was serving. What I found interesting, Bob, is you know when I was in college and I was studying finance and economics, and then I went to hear you speak for the first time. It was almost like I had to unlearn most of what I had been taught formally about the way we're supposed to make decisions financially as a public, as individuals. And we're, like you said, we're, we're taught things like, hey, let's make this prediction of what life might look like in 30 years. And let's build a mathematical formula around that so we can hit this target. And we don't even know that target's going to be right or wrong until it's like to do anything about it. What are some other lessons I think that yeah, I guess you could say you, you've learned along the way that it kind of gave you this light bulb moment that there, there has to be a better way. Well, two things. Let's look at professional advisors first, and then let's look at consumers with uh, responding to your question. Uh, years ago, if you had a knee injury, an ACL surgery being required in the 80s, let's say, it was a huge scar running down the front of your knee. It was four to six months in a cast, crutches. It was a long, drawn out ordeal. And these days, if you have a football injury and or a tennis injury and you have to have an ACL procedure, it's a couple dots on your knee, no long scar, no cast, no crutches for more than a few days. And it might be that you're back playing golf or playing tennis 30 to 45 days from now. So it didn't mean that back then in the 80s that doctors were wrong or had bad intentions. It's just that the manner in which that actual procedure was conducted improved. It elevated. And I think that when I'm in front of advisors, we really do a good job of just appealing to their good side, which is how do I get better? How do I perform better for the clients that I'm working with? And in that way, you don't shame people. You don't make them wrong. It's just an opportunity to do something better today than you were doing yesterday. As it relates to the consumer, their reaction is pretty standard and stunning. They, as a group, say to us, this is what I've been looking for. This makes so much sense. Where has this been? And wow, I wish I had met you years ago and not wasted all this time in the process. So on both sides of the fence, whether it's professional advisors or consumers, this new uncommon approach to money-making decisions has been a win up and down the line. When we think about this journey of planning our, our financial future, this is a relatively new profession. You know, It's not like medicine where we can go back through hundreds and hundreds of years of, of scientific history. I mean, the invention of financial planning really didn't take shape until like the 1970s or so. What are, what are some things that advisors were taught back in the early days of financial planning? And how have those teachings unfolded in reality for the American public? Well, in the 
earlier times, people worked for corporations for decades. Uh, they retired with the, the watch and the luncheon. But most importantly, they left that company with a check in the mailbox for themselves for retirement for as long as they lived, a defined benefit pension program that for most companies has evaporated and is non-existent these days. So financial planning as we know it today didn't exist back then because people who worked at a company for 25, 30 years retired with a cash flow equal to 60 to 70% of their final pay for the rest of their lives. There wasn't the need to build their own balance sheet up to invest wisely and to create a nest egg that they were going to live out of because that part of finance was being handled at the corporate level on their behalf. What happened was global competition, et cetera, caused companies to say, wow, this defined benefit promise is affecting our profitability. And so one company after the other began to dismantle that huge, valuable financial benefit. And about that time was the advent of the 401k plan, which initially was marketed as the icing on the defined benefit cake. It's, it's 60 to 70% of your income for the rest of your life, guaranteed, regardless of who's in the White House or what the market's doing, it's guaranteed. But if you want to defer a little bit of your own money to sweeten the pot, then you can add some icing to that defined benefit cake through the channel known as the 401k. Sadly, as more and more companies got rid of their defined benefit programs, the story changed. 401k itself didn't change, but the story around it changed. And it went from being the icing on the defined benefit cake to being the cake itself. And the messaging was, if you just max out your 401k, pick up that corporate match, you will be looking at a result that provides you with financial independence. And that's simply not the case. It's, in a nutshell, been a failed social experiment, largely due to the over-reliance on qualified plans and 401k plans in particular. Demographics, corporate behavior, all was changing. And that gave rise to an industry called the fi financial planning services industry, which said, let us help you with the rest of your financial issues. You've got your 401k plan. Of course, you're going to max it out. What else can we be attending to on your behalf? And asset allocation and in personal investing and the number of mutual funds went from less than 1,000 to over 15,000. And then the internet arrived and everybody thought that maybe they could either check Jim McGovern out by searching about you or they would rather just maybe plan their own lives. So huge social and economic forces have collided in such a way to where the public has been left confused and underserved. And all of that was going on in my mind at that point in time in my career. And it's really what started the wheels turning on doing better and coming up with something that we knew would help the public in areas where help wasn't available elsewhere. So Bob, let's just talk a little bit, just briefly about what is Living Balance Sheet? What is the technology? Because I, you know, I know some people think, oh, it's a website. And it's like, that's not really the technology, right? It, it's more about the decision-making process and the thinking behind Living Balance Sheet is a real technology. 
So let, let's spend a little bit of time just talking about what living balance sheet is, how it works, and then get into some of these symptoms that that you have seen during your career. I've seen it during mine that so many people are suffering from, and then talk about what people can do differently. The living balance sheet is intentionally a fusion of a new, improved way of thinking about money and technology that was emerging 15, 20 years ago. It was the combination of the two. It wasn't just technology. It wasn't just a website. It wasn't something certainly that would separate us from the pack. It was this uncommon approach to financial decision-making. And I think we'll probably talk a little bit about that and why a new approach was so desperately needed. Once we get a client relationship established under the philosophy and premise of something new and different, something that really will work, the question is, how do you keep a consumer organized when they deal with a variety of different institutions and they have money everywhere and they have questions and they're living their life. They're not spending every day of their life worried about their finances. How do they keep a track of that? How do they keep that organized and up to date? And that's where we leverage and harness technology so that all of our clients have their own personal, private, secure financial home base in the form of a website that's just theirs and can be accessed with their permission by their financial advocate or advisor. And inside that website experience, they can see all their major financial decisions on one page, on a single view. And that in itself is patent worthy and breakthrough in nature. The ability to see all areas of your financial picture on one view, not being housed in a 75 page financial plan with tabs and a table of contents, but just one page operating like a medical radiologist looks at an MRI. We call our platform a financial MRI, where your training and mine allows us to see what's working, what's good, what's well positioned, but also to be able to see where the broken bones and tumors are. And even if it's a hairline fracture, clients need to know that so that that small problem doesn't become a big problem. And with that view, it can't be that it's static. It has to be able to be updated. And so we are now connected to over 9,000 financial institutions where every day as assets go up and debts go down, the client's net worth position is restated. And the connection occurs seamlessly through our technology provider so that's aggregation or data scraping. And there's nothing that the client has to do. They just wake up, log in anywhere in the world with an internet connection. They can see the current status of their money, their assets, and their liabilities. In addition to that, uh, we have alerts that say, hey, John and Susan need to be reminded to do this, or don't forget that, or it's time to review and update. Uh, there's an electronic vault where many people store their most important financial documents in their home. If that home is destroyed by a hurricane or a flood or a fire, uh, what good is it that all that was neatly organized in their closet? So it's an electronic vault where mother nature or harm's way can't affect the most important components of a person's financial picture. And so the combination of a brand new way of thinking about the order in which to make financial decisions coupled with this client service deliverable that keeps them on track, keeps them connected to their advisor and makes sure that nothing falls through the crack, 
or becomes out of date is a package of service that doesn't exist elsewhere. And the impact in a client's life and in the households that we work with is phenomenal. It's not a rounding error. It could be that two, three, four, five times more wealth can be created over the same time frame with the same or less risk than the client's currently willing to take. So we have a, enough time through the rearview mirror and a, enough of a positive track record to know that when we enter the scene, uh, we pretty much know what's wrong, what needs attention. And we also know the best possible pathway to move them to an improved financial outlook. So Bob, when I, when I think about just anytime I meet somebody for the first time, and, and we start having a discussion about finance, you, you look at what people go through. You look at the different angles that they're receiving financial advice, and it, it feels like a mess, right? It's like it's like people have this, we always refer to it as a, a financial junk drawer. They have all this stuff. They just don't know how it all fits together. They're getting advice from different professionals. They're getting advice from blogs. They're getting advice from their brother-in-law. And it's like decisions are just kind of being made just kind of randomly, kind of ad hoc. And, you know, it's like they're worried about a lot with their future, but they're not really sure where to start right now. And that leads to a whole host of symptoms. And, you know, with Living Balance Sheet, with several thousand professionals throughout the country using the system, serving, you know, well over a million consumers, what are some of the symptoms that you have seen that really plague people the most? Well, first of all, I, I would submit that the failure of the financial planning industry is witnessed by how similar people look when we first meet them. They have these common characteristics or what we refer to as being symptoms that don't just happen every once in a while. They're fairly regular in their occurrence. And so there must be some recognition of the fact that the playbook that the public has been given for all these years, four decades and counting now, has been a, a failure on their behalf. It hasn't delivered to them the successful pathway that they deserve. And we're told that by clients by saying, wow, thank you for getting me organized and, and improving the trajectory of my financial future. So what is it that we see far too often? And it's not something that we gloat over. It, it sort of is sad to see over and over and over again. Uh, there's a, a commonality that exists that you know, we can talk about. And I think the first overarching villain here is this, this buy-in, this acceptance of investment risk. I think, I think it's okay for us to be clear that speculation is a losing strategy. And that's a stand that we take for our clients. It's not the best of seven of a MLB playoff. It's one and done. We have one exponential curve, one time frame to live through, and it has to be that we get it right. And so when we speculate, the potential for failure soars. Uh, in the, the movie Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps, Michael Douglas is quoted says, you know, the mother of all evil is speculation. Take investment risk and, and borrow to the hilt. And like in the movie, what you and I and other observers, other advisors observe is that it's uh, systemic, it's malignant, and it's pervasive. So the question is, why do people take an inordinate amount and unacceptable high level of risk and the, the answer is that they've been taught that taking risk is safe to do. 
And there's all types of fine print at the bottom of marketing material and collateral uh, that's, that says otherwise. But the, the real visual are, are these mountain charts that say, if you look back for 20, 30, 50, 80 years, look at the mountain of money that you would have had had you invested then and stayed the course. And you've seen these and many advisors who will be dialing into your podcast know exactly what I'm talking about. Consumers make buying decisions based upon that historical evidence. It actually did happen. The problem is, is that those mountain charts are incomplete from a visual standpoint in that they don't depict the impact of fees, fee drag, investment management fees along the way that have to come out of the fund, income taxes that are either paid out of pocket or out of the fund itself. And it doesn't contemplate this mystery of poor investment behavior that people panic and they're constantly having their money be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And statistically, things like the Standard & Poor's Index can boast of a 10 to 12% compounded annualized rate of return. And yet, after fees, after taxes, after potential behavior mistakes and other financial costs, the washing away effect, the eroding effect, the net effect to consumers is more like 4 or 5%. And we also know that if they're 100% aggressive in their asset allocation versus 75-25, 50-50, offsetting some of that risk with bonds that they we can predict by doing thorough analysis that they'll all land in about the same zip code. So there is no real reward for taking risk because if the fund is expected to increase rapidly, then fee drag increases, income tax exposure increases, and the risk of having bad years are much more severe. So people that we meet admit they're behind. They fear that they're never going to catch up. And they have the pedal to the metal with regard to the amount of risk that they're injecting into their financial futures. That, that is overarching and sadly far too prevalent as we enter the scene of a brand new client situation. I, th I think you hit the nail on the head, Bob, that it's people feel behind and they think, well, not taking risk is risky. Because if I take the so-called risk, look at this extra return I'll get, that'll help me catch up. And what we find out is that high risk just means high risk. And when those things don't work out timing-wise in your favor, you could be even further behind. Well, that's, that's certainly true. But the real negative rippling effect of buying into the risk promise, and even though there's disclaimers that past history is no guarantee of future results, they show history, history, history so often it's so compelling that people just say, hey, I want to plug some of that history into my life. And what that has led to is a, a generation and a half and counting moving through time as poor savers. So because of a compounded phantom expectation of a return, a stock market-like rate of return, the financial planning formula shows up and says, well, if you're going to assume this rate of return, in order to hit the target, you just don't need to save as much as you thought. And so 10, 15, 20 years go by where people have been taught, literally taught by our industry and advisors that we compete with to not save. There are financial programs out there that says if you have this much money on your balance sheet today, in order to hit the stated target that you just gave to me, if you can assume this rate of return, you don't have to save another penny ever again. How that gets through compliance uh, amazes me and it disturbs me on behalf of the consumers that we serve. So it's sadly 
it's actually not even required to take risk. If people can be shown a pathway to become what we call world-class savers, then they can say no to risk. And even with a more modestly constructed asset allocation, they'll have much more money just by being in control of their future through ongoing, systematic, well-structured savings. So we see the combination of high risk, but they're not throwing a lot of money at it. They're being, they've been taught to take that risk. It'll all work out in most cases. And so therefore, you don't have to save to hit your financial target or goals. And the combination of those two have left millions and millions of Americans disappointed. So that's how people get off to the wrong foot. Risk and low savings, a deadly negative consequence awaits. And Bob, what, what about just access to money? Because you know this starts to all compound on each other. It's like, okay, people are taking high risk. And because of that, they aren't saving enough. And then whatever they do save, people are taught to lock the money up, put it on the 401k plan, put it on that retirement account at work, and you won't need it for three or four decades. Or if they if they do need liquidity, it's like, oh, just keep a month or two in an emergency fund. That's right. That's the common advice. Two or three months, just in case. And it's always actually labeled an emergency fund. We look at life from two perspectives, things that we know and can expect will happen, like children growing up and maybe going to college, retirement someday, weddings for your children, and expanding life. You know, those are things that we hope happen. And we can and should plan for allowing them to happen. And then you have a long list of possibilities in the area of unplanned events, death and disability and lawsuit and parent care and loss of job. These are things that might happen to me, but not you. And in order to be able to respond in both ways, people need to have a healthy, healthy layer of liquid capital on their balance sheet. And if you look to the internet or the media, you know, people are told the first thing you should do before you even do anything is to max out your 401k plan. And this is being told to a 23 year old just out of college where retirement is 40 plus years down the road. They have no real capital on their balance sheet to move forward into their future. And they're locking money up for decades that if life changes its mind, or if they should have to respond to a planned life event, there's fees, penalties, delays, qualifications, payback requirements that are punitive and don't provide the flexibility and the nimbleness that the public needs to have. So liquidity is the direction in which the destination in which world-class savings should go. Once we get people saving at the appropriate level, it's a simple question of where should that money, where should that cash flow be directed? And the first order of business should be into places, into products where easy access exists without qualification, with minimal disturbance or delay or taxation. And if we talk to people that way, they can they see that they can actually own the same products that they're investing in in their 401k plan. It just is that that mutual fund perhaps is outside the 401k, which now frees it up from all of the restrictions that 401k assets contain. So, you know, life is 
amazingly unpredictable. We'd like to think that it'll all work out for us. In my personal family situation, we've had where I changed careers on a Sunday morning without warning over a dispute with my present employer at that time. Uh, we've had children get married that were destination weddings, invited people, more people than I ever thought that they even knew. We have kids that loved college so much that they went more than four years and they were all out of state. Uh, we had one child that had a trouble with Adderall addiction for her learning disability and spent 66 days in a rehab facility, $1,000 a day. Uh, we've had to provide support for aging parents before they died because they didn't have the means to provide for themselves. And on the other side of things, we had opportunities that came our way to invest freely in what we thought were good opportunities, whether it was to start a business, to fund a business, partial ownership in a restaurant, buying real estate, things that are out of reach for people that have spent too much, saved too little, and what they have saved, they have stored in home equity or qualified plan assets. And so low liquidity is an underappreciated aspect of financial balance. And we bring that to the forefront and cause people to think through, hey, if I had to liquidate everything or if I had to go get my money today, where is it? And what are the roadblocks between me and that money to allow me to respond to a changing unexpected life event or something that I really want to do? And I think that the cousin of all this is that it leads people to debt, right? Because, you know, life changes its mind oftenly, like you've taught all of us. And uh, sometimes you need large amounts of money for things and you don't have the money to pay for it currently. And that's where that's where debt appears. And then people spend a lifetime trying to battle that debt. So, so talk to us a little bit about about the, the just the, the struggles people have with debt and, and why they have it in the first place and, and what they can do about it. So a couple of big picture responses there might be helpful to your audience. What's the definition of debt, first of all? The definition of debt is you couldn't afford something, but you bought it anyway. And you bought it by financing or borrowing it from an institution. If you just sort of think about that definition, it gives people pause and they say, well, I guess that's right. Maybe people shouldn't buy a brand new car every four years. The impact of rolling out of a car payment after 48 months into a new car that maybe is a little bit nicer and doing that repeatedly over an entire working career easily, easily robs that individual or household of $1 million of wealth or more, easily. So maybe people should drive the car after payments are no longer due. Or maybe they should drive a used car with 30,000 miles on it and maybe just use you armor all and new car spray to make it appear at ballet as if it was brand new. So the cash flow going into depreciating assets is out of control. People can't afford things and they buy those same things anyway. And when we find people that are in debt, the second lesson here in the form of a question that we ask all of our clients shapes up the opportunity really for improved outcomes. And that question is, you know, John and Sarah, I see that you have credit card debt, you have money that you owe on your cars, you still have some lingering student loan debt. If I were just to ask you a general question, who's more important to yourselves and your family? Would it be you, your family, or Visa, or any other financial institution who would you say is more important? And we ask that routinely, and we've never gotten the wrong answer. And the answer is, well, of course, 
we're more important, our family's more important. And so then it's simple for us to respond by saying, well, since that's true, let's make sure that your debt payoff strategies are in keeping with what you just told me. You see, institutions are organized around how many times, how many turns on money they can realize in a given year. They loan it out, they want it to be paid back fast so they can loan it back out again. And when that's paid back, they loan it back out again. This this motion and velocity of money is actually what allows institutions to thrive. And while they're thriving, consumers are paying the cost. This idea of paying off debt now, and then someday when you're out of debt, you'll be able to save is a losing strategy. We have to be able to, to educate clients on ways in which they can begin to build up their balance sheet. Their future comes first. Their protection, their liquidity, their assets have to be first, even if the financial institutions of the world have to wait. And at this point, we're sitting on the same side of the table as the consumer. There's no tug of war here. That's what they've been waiting to hear. And it shows up in their lives with the scare tactics around paying minimum payments. And if you pay minimum payments, it takes 45 years to pay off a credit card balance or the idea that student loans will pay off those student loans in seven seven years and then will save, or even a 15-year mortgage being attractive to consumers as being the best way to pay off your home mortgage. Those are all examples of pay down debt, get rid of debt, and then save. And the cost that is lost in all of those examples is time, the loss of time that can never be recovered. We, again, have one exponential curve, one time frame that we're moving through today until retirement, and we can't be going the wrong direction or at a slower speed for 5, 10, 15 years and then play catch up. It just doesn't work. So we help people move out of debt while simultaneously putting them at the front seat of the bus ahead of the financial institutions that have their hooks in them and say, hey, We'll get to you in time as we strengthen our financial picture. And when we talk to clients that way and we show them exactly debt by debt, mortgage by mortgage, how that can be accomplished. And we have a website that tracks their progress of coming out of that debt hole into a place where living debt free is the destination. Clients stay with us forever and they happily refer us to people that they care about. What about safety nets, Bob? Because- We've covered a lot of, of great ground on you know, the, the issues around risk and low savings rates and low liquidity, and, and then fighting so hard to get rid of debt. Now, we don't want that debt to come roaring back because of something we could have protected against in the first place. What have you seen people, the state that they're in when, when you meet them with, with how well they've protected what's most important? Yeah, it's it's interesting that the the assets that are the least valuable have the best protection and the assets that are the most valuable the assets that if something happened to them would destroy their financial futures are left relatively unattended. Example would be an automobile. If you call State Farm or USAA and say, I've bought a new car, then the person on the other end of the line says, well, what kind of car? And they look up the value of it and they they put in place a an amount of coverage or protection equal to the asset, that automobile. Same thing with car. I'm same thing with home, rather, sorry. Same thing with home, where you buy a home, you have a mortgage, and you buy homeowner's insurance so that if it burns the ground, 
the insurance comes to the rescue and rebuilds the house as if nothing ever happened. Uh, jewelry that a spouse might cherish. If that $20,000 ring is lost or stolen, most people should have an amount of coverage that would replace that ring as if it was never lost. So in some areas of their protection portfolio, we see the full replacement theory alive and well, as it should be. The definition of insurance itself is to indemnify or protect or replace the full value of all assets, no matter what happens to them. And so we see areas where full replacement approaches are being employed, and that's great. We salute them. It's high five time when we work with clients, and that's the case. In the area of liability, however, uh, there's usually a, a huge exposure. Uh, it can't be that we're working with our John and Sue clients of the world, and everything's looking good. They're organized. They're saving. They're moving towards a, a more balanced financial future with liquidity and risk being in the proper proportions. And then one of the two spouses coming home from work runs through a red light and strikes a car passing under their green light, and that driver is killed or severely injured. At that moment, their future income, the client's future income, and their balance sheet comes to be at risk. What is the future worth, the economic value of that driver of the car that was driving innocently home to his family or her family and didn't make it because of the negligence of the driver of the other car? See, we can't let that possibility, which happens every day if you're driving on the highway or in a metropolitan area or you just read about it online, accidents happen. And when accidents happen, people are at fault and other people pay the price. And we can't let that possibility stand in the way of people making it and having their financial futures unfold like they should. So we talk in terms of maximum liability protection and also a large excess liability policy, commonly known as an umbrella policy. So high deductibles, full replacement coverage, suit protection, to protect income and balance sheet if a loss or accident were to occur. All those, however, are secondary and sit behind the most significant threat that we all face. Every consumer faces a universally similar financial threat, the biggest threat that they face, and that is the permanent loss of their earning power due to death or disability, where the money that has fueled their life and is building for their future someday stops forever. There is no other financial calamity that measures up or equals the loss of all future income. It's in the tens of millions of dollars for most of our clients. And yet from a life insurance and disability insurance protection, we see little to none in many cases. They might have group insurance. Uh, they might have no insurance. They might have bought insurance under some needs analysis. How much would your family need? As opposed to applying the same full replacement approach that people have used for their car, their home, and their jewelry. How much is your future economic firepower worth? Let's calculate it. Let's see how much insurance is available, and let's make sure that you're perfectly protected. So we, we come to the rescue for our clients who have been underserved when the subject of protection comes up. So Bob, this is very, very powerful view of, of these symptoms that so many people are, are plagued by. And as we start to wrap up, 
and get ready for part two of this conversation. What can people do? Like, where should they begin? What are what are some of the initial steps that they can take to start to get rid of these symptoms and, and keep them out of their lives? Well, the first thing that I would do would be to find someone like you who spent their entire career not trying to just get by or make a sale, but really owning the responsibility of being the advocate and guide for all of your clients so that they can someday say, the day we met Jim was the day our financial outlook got better. That's the first thing I would do. The second would be we would forego this whole approach to needs how much is college going to cost? How much do I need for retirement? What would my family need if I don't make it? And exchange that approach to one which provides success no matter what happens. And that is a goal. My goal, your goal is to help people move to an improved level of financial balance overall. It's not called the living sheet. It's called the living balance sheet. And the key word there is balance. And we know what balanced financial decision-making looks like. We know what it will lead to. And we also know when it's missing. So we compare what optimal financial balance looks like to today's current financial situation for each client. And then we go to work on trying to move them closer to what is optimal. And if they do that, then no matter what the world throws their way, they'll be in the best possible position compared to risk needs, being illiquid, and hoping that a target actually is correct. And what that leads to and what we'll hopefully talk about next time is this step by step by step by step approach to financial decision making so that this quandary of what is my actual best next financial move? What what should I be doing? What should I do next? And have a defense against everything sounding like it's tied for first and know exactly what should be addressed today and tomorrow and in each subsequent step. I look forward to sharing that with your audience uh, next time we're together. Fantastic. And Bob, thanks again so much for coming on the show and uh, and covering part one. I think everybody that's listening to this is going to be pretty excited to to hear what you have to say in part two. Before I turn over to Patrice, uh, one quick reminder, one quick announcement I should say is in the show notes, if you want to get a sense of some of these symptoms and how they might apply to you right now, Uh, There's a link in the show notes where you can plug in just some very basic high-level information uh, about yourself and get a scorecard produced that'll that'll show you some of these symptoms that Bob was talking about today and how they apply to you. So give that a shot. There's no cost to that link. Uh, It's free for the public to use, uh, but I think it'll prepare you quite well for what we're going to cover in the next episode. So Bob, thanks again. And uh, Patrice, let me turn it back over to you. All right. But before we go, Jim, how can listeners reach you? So a couple ways to reach us. You can find us on our website, www.mcgovernwealth.com. There's a contact us button on there, or you can send us an email, info at mcgovernwealth.com. All right. And I'm looking forward to part two with Bob Ball, the living balance sheet. Follow this podcast, Maximizing Outcomes, to know when the latest episode is ready for you. And of course, please share with others. And thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast. Brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. 
Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation, or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number 0F67329 AR Insurance License Number 7119103 California Insurance License Number 0F67329 Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103 Compliance number 2023-165149 expires December of 2025. There is a statistical correction that I need to make. Uh, We accidentally said that there was a million subscribers for a living balance sheet. The correct number is roughly half a million subscribers. Also, a world-class saver is a person who saves at least 15 to 20% of gross income. The living balance sheet is a registered trademark of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Copyright 2024.